Hello, hello. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Impact Michigan podcast. I'm your host, Leanna Bott. As you probably know by now, it's season three. So in proper fashion, we had to go with today's guest because we wanted to start off strong. That being said, today's guest is none other than Anne Arbor entrepreneurial and probably general legend, Rich Sheridan. Rich is the founder of Menlo Innovations, which is made famous by its tours and workshops, all centered around how they maximize joy in the workplace. That's right, folks, joy. And you know, that makes sense considering Rich himself has authored not one, but two books with joy in the title. Which also reminds me that Rich recently came out with a book last December titled Chief Joy Officer, which offers readers insights on how to embody joy in their own management slash leadership practices. Folks, if you want a copy of that new book, check the link in the description of this podcast. I don't know how many of you have already heard the new announcement, not only to kick off season three, but also just to kick off the future of this podcast. But the Impact Michigan podcast is now presented by Intermittent. Intermittent is a grassroots volunteer-operated organization that was founded in 2016, and our mission is to unite the Midwest tech community, thoughtfully nurture its development, and highlight it as a hub of and destination for entrepreneurial talent and innovation. All right, with that, let's get into the episode. Welcome, Rich. Thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, I wish the weather was a little bit better because we had to walk back here. Um, but you know, it's it's Michigan. We'll have to we'll have to deal. There's a beautiful um, summer coming. I just yeah, know it. No, definitely, definitely. Um, and so, what I um, allow my guests to do at the beginning, just for the listeners, not to get some context on the guest, even though. A lot of my listeners probably have a lot of context on you is just allow my guests to tell their story. So for the listeners, who is Rich Sheridan? <laughs> well, I think most people know me today as the CEO and chief storyteller here at Menlo Innovations. Uh, we're a software design and development firm in Ann Arbor. Uh, my history in Ann Arbor goes back a, much further than that. I came up here as a student in 1978. Uh, fell in love with Ann Arbor, never left, got a couple of degrees in uh, computer science, computer engineering, and uh, been in the tech industry since then, uh, although my start in it actually started long before that. I was just a kid in high school up in Mount Clemens, just north of Detroit, and I learned to program, fell in love with the profession. So I'm a pure Michigan kid, been in Michigan my whole life, uh, but lived in Ann Arbor since 1978. Wow. It was 19, so 1978 was your first time in Ann Arbor because you went to school. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Well, not first time technically in Ann Arbor. Well, it's when yeah. I moved to Ann Arbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brothers both went to school here, so I was coming up to Ann Arbor in the, in the late 60s just to uh, visit them. Yeah. Was Mount Clemens, because now, because I'm from Sterling Heights, and that's Macomb okay. County, yep. right? Yep. Mount that's Clemens right. is Macomb County. Yep. Um, 
And Mount Clemens is like on the north east side-ish around there. Yeah, it's a county seat. It's uh, kind of over by Lake St. Clair. So yes, it's on the eastern side of Macomb County. Was that more like, because we usually go there to go to like, and, and take like Romeo Plank to go, like I, I think like apple orchards and stuff like that. Um, was that like farmland back then? Well, Mount Clemens certainly wasn't because the city of Mount Clemens was the county seat. So ah, okay. the tallest buildings in Macomb County, I think, are probably still in Mount Clemens. Uh, I grew up around 16 Mile in Grosbeck. And so back then it was it was pretty rural. 16 uh, in Grosbeck is considered Mount Clemens? Well, it's Clinton Township okay. technically, yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, right, bumping right up against the southern edge of Mount Clemens. Yeah, yeah. And so other than programming and stuff like that, what were you like as a kid? Yeah, uh, I figured I'd end up outdoors. I was an avid Boy Scout, uh, eventually got my Eagle Scout. Nice. Loved to go canoeing and fishing and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I didn't anticipate probably when I was a kid that I'd end up in work that would keep me indoors most times. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, and I loved baseball. Uh, that was a just an absolute passion of mine. I played baseball every minute of every day. Um, and uh, in 1973, I had typed the entire baseball register into that computer I was learning to program and allowed my friends to play our favorite teams against wow. one another. And so I guess if I'd stuck with that, I would have created fantasy baseball someday. Yeah, that would have been, <laughs> oh man, you probably would have had like, yeah, you'd be a bajillionaire by now. Exactly. I know. <laughs> My life is probably littered with lost opportunities. Oh, like that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, like, so I assume you're uh, an angel investor in some startups, right? Yep. Yeah. So what have been some of your, like, you know, you've left money on the table, like missed opportunities, like you're, you're Well, you know, I, I don't know if you wouldn't, I wouldn't say in the investment category, but when I was my first job in Ann Arbor, I was working for a company up on Plymouth Road called Manufacturing Data Systems Incorporated. Uh, there was a woman who sat next to me. Uh, her name was Gloria Page. Uh, she used to bring her young son, Lawrence, in to work with her every day. Or not every day, but every now and then. Uh, he was probably about 10 at the time when I worked there. And then somebody pointed out to me later that Lawrence became Larry, and Larry started Google, obviously. Yeah. So clearly I should have hung around more with that little 10-year-old, but I uh, wasn't smart enough to see how smart he was. So maybe that's the closest I've come to, to real lost opportunity. Is that? Yeah, so. yeah. And that's funny. It's it's like because he was probably just a normal kid, right? He was just interested in, in manufactured data systems. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, and I'm sure his mom, uh, in particular, who was a programmer there, probably uh, got him interested in technology at a young age, just like I did. Yeah, yeah. So when you were at the university, and obviously, you know, you had a prior interest and prior history yeah. with you know computer information science all of that what do you think it was that led you to one pursue a master's in it but two just like pique your interest and, and you know furnish your desire for the the industry for the study yeah I, for some reason for me when i started programming when i typed uh, even simple programs into the computer, there was kind of this magical switch that popped in my head where I thought, wow, I did that. You know, I had this idea in my head, I typed a few things on the computer and it worked. Uh, and that was magical for me. I, the, 
it felt like this wide open canvas that I could actually manipulate even at a young age. And so I saw the, I saw somewhat the frontier in all of that and the idea that uh, there was kind of no limit to my imagination at that point. And that was very exciting for me. And I think getting started back in the 70s when kind of nobody knew what computers were, uh, you were kind of impressing the adults around you who were wondering, how do these kids know how to work these computer yeah. things and we don't? And so it was a pretty heady time, and that was intoxicating, I guess is probably a good way to put it. And it became a, a pretty serious hobby back in those days. Uh, I had a lot of friends that were doing it as well, and we just spent a lot of time on the computers, probably like kids do today, but back then we were programming and, uh, and discovering and learning as quickly as possible, and all that was just a lot of fun. Yeah, so, you know, from, so taking your experience from when you started in it, um, even before 1978, like how have you seen the evolution? Because obviously, you know, you go through the internet.com boom and like leading up to, a one, uh, to 2000, obviously, and then you have sort of the wave of social media and even now there's sort of something lurking where we're not exactly sure what it's going to be, but we have like early you know, ideas as to what, like, how have you seen the evolution? Like, have there been like specific characteristics that have been the same for each wave as Steve Case would call it? You know, I, I think what any of us who've been in the tech industry as long as I have, and I've been in it, you know, now what is this uh, closing in on uh, uh, 40, 46 years, 47 years, something like that. Uh, as I started when I was 13, um, Obviously, any of us who've been in the industry that long have seen this steady, inexorable march towards, uh, uh, you know, increasing capacity. Uh, Moore's Law guarantees that. I think, though, there was a tipping point, and I'll just point to it at uh, sort of at the iPhone level, because uh, I think uh, when the iPhone came out, it was the it was the first moment in some ways that many of us had been waiting for for a long time. And it was that suddenly everything converged. Everything came together. I mean, you have this amazing CPU capacity, memory capacity, screen capacity, user experience capability, and so on. And I think it was right around that time where it dawned on me that the technology had actually, the physical hardware, had outstripped our imagination. We were now limited not by the hardware, but by our imagination. Yeah. Up until that point, we were always bumping into limits. There was something the computer couldn't do that we wanted it to do. But right around the time the iPhone came out, everything had kind of come together at a hardware perspective where suddenly sky was the limit. Uh, we were now in what I call the imagination age, where uh, now if you can think it, you can do it. And I think we see a lot of that going on right now. Uh, you know, there's there's all the things that are going on in artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles and uh, any kind of devices or interconnectedness. I mean, you think of how hard we used to work to wire computers together back in those days. And now we're just always, we always assume we're just always connected. Yeah. I mean, the fact that my phone is available to be interconnected on the <laughs> web uh, it, wherever I am. As long as I'm within cell phone coverage, even on airplanes yeah. now, yeah. Uh, I'm always connected. And that's, you know, even though I know how it all works, I understand the underlying technology that's yeah. at work, the communication protocols, the hardware, and so on. Um, 
it's it feels like magic now, yeah. even to me. Yeah, you know, I, I find that really interesting because obviously I'm I'm a young person. I'm I'm a really young person, and I hear like a lot of the time people in the tech industry, you know, who have been through these cycles, you know, telling kids my age, you know, appreciate what you have. Like you literally have a supercomputer in your pocket, and you know, I try to understand that I try to comprehend it and, and I'm like yeah I get it but I don't think I can truly unless I was there I don't think I think it's just immensely difficult to actually appreciate you know actually seeing this entire room that we're in filled with computing power that's now in the size of something that's in my pocket yeah you have to you you have to adjust your imagination just a little bit because a computer that would fill this room is probably one one thousandth of what you're carrying around in your pocket now. And then, yeah, see, I and, can't even. <laughs> yeah, no, and you know, look, we're looking out at Tech Arb here, there's 50 kids in a room. There are probably, uh, with 50 kids in a room, 50 computers, they're all carrying their laptops, and they all have cell phones equally as capable, either Android or, uh, or this. So there's 100 computers just in that room full of people right there that are easily affordable. Yeah, uh, everybody's going to have one, and as you say, we're all carrying them around in our pocket. When I was a student at the University of Michigan, there was basically one computer on the entire campus. It was up on North Campus. It was in a very large air-conditioned building, and you had to go, essentially, to worship at the altar of the computer, <laughs> and uh, you had to wait in line. You had to wait in line to get access to the computer. If it, if it wasn't available, you waited. The humans waited for the computer, and now it's, you know. It's, it's hard to imagine those yeah. days now, even yeah. for me. Yeah. So, so we talked a little bit about the different waves. So, what? How do you see the future going? Obviously, there's you know AR, VR, MR. Even there's you know blockchain technology. There's a slew of other things. What would your you know early predictions be? Well, I love this quote from John Nesbitt, who wrote a book in 1982 called Megatrends. And he kind of looked ahead and kind of asked, you know, spent an entire book trying to speculate on the question you're asking now. And the quote in the book that really struck me, and I actually use it a lot even when I speak today, was that the greatest advancements that are going to occur in the 21st century, the century we're in now, remember he was writing this in 1982, so he's looking ahead at least 20 years, yeah. probably more, uh, that the greatest advancements that are going to occur in the century we're in now are not going to occur because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. Hmm. And I think that's actually our greatest frontier. Uh, I think we're I think we're in this kind of clumsy age of technology right now, where uh, you know you, even you look at some of the the biggest articles that are coming out right now about how some ways our our technology has betrayed us a little bit, or we're worried about it because uh, it's maybe doing things we don't want it to do, uh, and I think we're not. Our, our, it's almost as if our not just our imagination but our ethics, uh, our spirit and human energy have to come back into play again because the technology is going to do whatever we ask it to do, but we might be asking it to do things incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we have to start bringing humanities back into the mix. We have to start bringing philosophy back into the mix. 
how are these things going to enhance us in, as humans versus how are they going to diminish us as humans? Yeah. And, you know, let's face it, I, I just marvel as I walk around campus uh, that, um, or, or drive around campus more appropriately, and watching how many people are just simply glued to their phone. They're not paying attention to anything that's going around them. And quite frankly, sometimes it's dangerous. They, they walk right out into the street without looking both ways. Uh, but, you know, those are uh, hopefully just comical things, not causing any injury. I think, though, we're watching our brains change. Uh, you know, yeah. we're, uh, you know, I even I have to catch myself. I, I feel very anxious if my phone isn't on. Am I keeping up with my texts, my emails, my Twitter account, uh, and so on? And we got to get on top of that. Those are important frontiers. I, I think we now have to look beyond, say, the computer science and engineering department and start looking into LSNA yeah. and seeing uh, how do we make sure we're doing the best thing we can for humanity. Yeah, I think that brings up an interesting point because, you know, I think another aspect of that is, you know, like you mentioned, technological literacy, mm -hmm. especially at scale, you know, because we as techie people, we in the city of Ann Arbor, like with ties to the University of Michigan, obviously a lot of us on campus, everybody in this building is probably technologically savvy, mm -hmm. right? We yep. can all work our way around a laptop. We know how to like work out its problems and stuff like that. But you go back, I don't know, maybe to around Mount Clemens. I'm, I'm from Sterling Heights. So around there, not everybody knows even let's say command c to command b <laughs> like that's like they don't they just don't think about stuff like that yeah. you know and so and and that's a very you know like mundane anecdote but you know just serves as, as an example you know not everybody is thinking that technology doesn't run their life you know they have different priorities and so i think it also comes down to like where does the majority of society see like the future going because a lot of times, you know, entrepreneurs can, you know, have their visions for their for the future, mm -hmm. but not be able to take into consideration everybody else's, you know, points of view. And so I think that's a very fascinating, like philosophical issue that we as a collective society are going to have to, you know, navigate. Well, look what's played out in Washington just the last few weeks where Mark Zuckerberg comes in to try and explain to Congress how Facebook works. And Congress doesn't even want to ask the questions. They're not sure what questions yeah. to ask. And quite frankly, as smart as Mark Zuckerberg is and his whole team and how many uh, uh, you know, people they have who are very savvy, it's pretty clear they did not anticipate what was going to happen with Facebook. Uh, you know, that it could in fact be used to influence things like elections and public opinion and, quite frankly, I think, divide us as a nation in the way it has and create these echo chambers where, uh, you know, depending on which echo chamber you, you choose to live in, you're only going to hear opinions of people who think like you do and not this diversity of opinion. And I think that's really, those are serious issues for us societally. Uh, and I think we got to start thinking about this. And, um, you know, it's one of the reasons we have at Menlo this practice we call high-tech anthropology. And, and the idea is go study the people we're going to serve and figure out what their goals are as people <coughs> and as human beings. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about Menlo. Obviously, <clears throat> there's the 
business aspect of it where, you know, it's, uh, how do you call it? Like you have two people at a workstation. Yeah. 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 So we're a software design and development firm. Uh, we're a custom software design and development firm. What that means is people come to us and ask us to build a piece of software and it can be on a device. It could be a website. It could be an application on a computer. Uh, it doesn't really matter to us. We form teams around those projects and we design the user experience and we build the software. And our aim, our mission, uh, probably in the early days, a little bit tongue in cheek, but much more serious now, is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And what we saw was that uh, there were a lot of projects that never saw the light of day, uh, a lot of money spent and the project never shipped. Uh, and that's very costly in terms of uh, just dollars, but it's also costly in terms of lives. Uh, people who work for many years, often our industry works long hours, and you don't see your work get out in the world, see the light of day. So we didn't want that, so we wanted to do really high quality work. Uh, and, but we also wanted to do work that delights the people it's intended to serve. And so we invented this new practice we call high-tech anthropology, which is very aligned with what uh, somebody like uh, IDEO would uh, talk about in terms of design thinking and so on. But the idea of applying anthropology to technology projects is this idea that we need to understand the humans we're going to serve. And so I, we think that's critically important. But it's the second piece is, you know, software is important now. Uh, I think in the early days when uh, any of us got going in technology, uh, if it didn't work, people like, ah, computers crashed again, blue screen of death on my Windows computer. Uh, maybe I have to reinstall the operating system. But now when software doesn't work, uh, flights are grounded sometimes for days. Uh, not because of weather or equipment problems or threats of terrorism or labor strife. It's because some servers in Atlanta crashed and we can't fly airplanes anymore if software isn't working. Uh, as we hurtle towards cars that are going to be driven by computers, uh, that's software. I mean, it's, yeah. it's purely software. And so there's this need to really take what we do in some ways much more seriously than we ever have. And so you asked about our paired approach to, uh, to work. Yeah, we, that's our commitment to quality, where when two people work on solving a problem together, which is how we work, um, when you're typing, I'm asking you questions about what you're typing, why you're typing it the way you're typing it, uh, uh, challenging your thinking. You're asking me questions for help. Uh, when you get stuck, I might take the keyboard from you and take over, and now we switch roles. And so this idea of pair programming, which is where this was all born out of, not an invention of Menlo, it actually came out of a book by a guy named Kent Beck, uh, improves the quality of software dramatically uh, by switching the pairs every five days. We're always bringing fresh thinking into the process and a fresh layer of quality because now if you and I worked on something for a few days, and now I'm paired with somebody else to carry that work forward, they're now asking questions, not only of where are we going from here, but how did we get to where we are? And all of these things we do in the name of increasing quality of the work we do, because quite frankly, there are projects we've worked on that have literally held the lives and hold the lives today of people in their hands, and software often, often does that. Uh, we worked on a, an important medical information system at the University of Michigan Health System if we get the data wrong, we could threaten the life of a patient. Yeah. Uh, so these are all really important considerations. 
and I'm not sure this thinking has quite gotten all the way back into computer science curriculums, even at places as great as the University of Michigan. And these are important considerations as we go <coughs> forward. You know, much the same way as way back when, when we were building tall skyscrapers or long bridge spans over rivers, they didn't always stay up. Yeah. Um, you know, even all the way back to old cathedrals, you know, people say, you know, wow, look at these cathedrals. They've been there for 500 years. Like, yeah, the ones that they built well were, yeah. but there were a lot of them that fell down, just like bridges did or buildings did. And so we need to start taking the discipline of creating software systems just as seriously as we do all the other civil engineering systems that we uh, have now take for granted as a society. Uh, what do you think will need to happen for, for that to take place? You know, I, I literally think we have to start looking hard at the curriculums, how we teach. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of discoveries that have been made out in industry uh, that happen post-college graduation, and a lot of those things can be brought back into the college curriculum and taught, uh, you know, and not the least of which is all the things we're learning about cybersecurity. Right? We, we need to start bringing those things back in, too, because it isn't just the system didn't work or it fell down or it crashed or it lost data. Uh, but, uh, you know, think of all the, I mean, it's almost a breach a day now that we read about out in the press, right? You know, if, you're, uh, if your uh, fitness pal had personal data, you lost that. If your Equifax account uh, had data, you lost that. You know, it, it just happens almost every day. And uh, these are important things for us to be putting back into curriculums of, of universities. I think some of the big software companies have to get much more involved in this as well and make sure we're thinking through uh, the basic security of operating systems and how applications are built in the tools and so on. Yeah, and so going back to you know, the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, the whole theme of this podcast is to help people see what's happening in Michigan. And, you know, from my experience, especially starting out, there was a lot of, oh, I don't know necessarily what's happening in Detroit. I don't know what's happening in Grand Rapids. And there's, you know, a statewide ecosystem here. So how have you seen the growth of, let's say, your, you know, specific domain expertise is in Ann Arbor, maybe even like the region, um, how have you seen the growth of the startup community, the startup ecosystem grow over the past few decades? Well, I think what we've seen, you know, if we look across, uh, I'll, I'll give a brief history lesson here, look across the course of human history, um, you see the spotlights move around as to where is the large economic activity happening, right? And in the early days, it was around transportation routes, mainly lakes and rivers and oceans and ports and that sort of thing. And that's where the big cities uh, emanated from. And then as uh, railways began to take over or interstate highway systems, the transportation routes were still really uh, fundamental to the growth of, uh, of economic activity. Now the economic spotlight is actually centered on major research universities. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the places, if you read the papers, of where are all the kids going? Where, when they graduate, where do they go? They go to places around places like Ann Arbor. Uh, they go to Boulder, they go to Austin, they go to Stanford they, uh, or uh, Palo Alto. Uh, they go to Cambridge, Massachusetts. The common theme is that uh, the economic spotlight is now on major research universities. We've shifted to this 
brain power economy and obviously moving goods, uh, uh, transportation are still fundamentally important. Uh, but what you're finding is uh, that um, it's where the brain power is accumulating is where the major economic activity is occurring. And much like when Detroit in the 20s, all the automotive industry was happening and Detroit was kind of the Silicon Valley of the Midwest, uh, you know, or Sil it was Silicon Valley back in those days because that's where all the entrepreneurial activity was happening around the automobile industry. Now you're seeing that same kind of entrepreneurial activity around major college university towns that have big mm -hmm. research dollars coming in. Yeah, what do you think it is about the major research universities? Do you think it's purely just the intellectual capital that's there? I, well, I, you know, again, I, I love to study history, and uh, if you look back to like the Medici's and that sort of thing in Italy, uh, what you find is that uh, I think where people are bumping into one another in coffee shops and bars, and they just start exchanging ideas, much like even you and I are doing today, um, you start to get this sort of gravitational effect where people start wanting to be part of that conversation. If you're off somewhere else, if you're off in a uh, faraway place, uh, you're not as much involved. And if you're curious about it, or if you leave home and come to a university and suddenly you find like you are, you know, I'm guessing with your podcast, you've actually learned, you've actually met a lot of interesting people. Yes, that is very um, true. And, you know, you probably are developing your own internal sense that wherever you go from here, whatever is next for you, you want to be near that activity. There, the, this has excited you. This has got your imagination running. You're, you're, you're thinking, hey, I want to be part of this. And quite frankly, that's what kept me in Ann Arbor. Uh, you know, back in 1982 when I graduated, it wasn't obvious where the next big hub was going to be. Was there activity on the East Coast? Sure. Was there activity on the West Coast? Absolutely. But there was also Chicago and Texas and, and not even Austin at that time. It was around Texas Instruments Corporation where a lot of this was happening. Uh, and Ann Arbor had as every bit uh, as much going on in 1982 as any other place in the country and still does, quite frankly. So, uh, you know, I can I had that feeling back in 1982. No, I want to be close to this stuff. Uh, you know, whether you stay here, or you go somewhere else. My guess is you're probably going to end up close to one of those kind of hubs because you just want to be part of that activity. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also, you know, part of like the generational thing where, you know, a lot of millennials, a lot of my generation, Generation Z, we value like the experiences we have, right? And so we want to have an experience every day. Like it could be, it doesn't matter what it is, we just want it to be of equal like impact, of equal intensity, you know, where it's like, I get to live a really cool life every single day. And that's what I really appreciate about where I live, you know? Yeah, and I think a lot of us, maybe when when I was younger, might have been, I actually thought, hey, I want to live out in Wyoming. I want to have a big piece of land. I don't want to see people for a, for 100 miles. And, you know, it's as far away from my current life as uh, can possibly get. But, you know, when we opened Menlo, we're right on the other side of the glass wall from TechArp. Had we been a traditional thinking business, we would have covered up that glass or replaced it with wallboard. We would have closed up that door and we went exactly the opposite direction. We added glass. We keep the door. We often open the door during the course of our days. We created a startup garage kind of like TechArb so that the entrepreneurs could stay here. Uh, we find it very vibrant to be this close to entrepreneurial activity. There was nothing like this back in 1982 when I was a student. I mean, this is, this is a very different time for a university where the university is saying, hey, we're, we're going to be a part of this 
ecosystem. We're, we're going to help spur this economic activity. I mean, you know, the tech transfer office that's pretty vibrant now for the University of Michigan didn't even exist in 1982. It wasn't even a concept in 1982. And so this idea that uh, the university itself is taking an active role in spurring entrepreneurship starts to create this, again, this entrepreneurial gravitational pull that will keep you know, students like you here or somewhere like this. Uh, you know, when we opened up the startup garage, two companies, when they graduated from Michigan, went over to the startup garage. Uh, uh, Skyspecs, uh -huh. uh, which is Danny Ellis's company, and they're doing really well now. Yeah. And a company called A2B Bike Share, uh, started by Ansgar Struther. He has since moved out to Grand Rapids and started up another company in that same general space of bike sharing. Uh, and uh, so he's doing really well as an entrepreneur. So all of these things are, are fun. They, they make life more interesting for us, just like they do for you. Yeah, definitely. And so wrapping up here, before I ask my last question, uh, where can our great listeners find more information about uh, about Menlo, about you, reach out to you, like find more information about Joy, which is what I almost mentioned, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote a book called Joy Inc. Uh, and so uh, certainly you can buy that book anywhere, uh, anywhere books are sold. Um, and I would recommend Literati here in town because they're a great little bookstore, uh, but certainly go online and buy that too. Uh, as far as the company goes, Menlo, M-E-N-L-O, uh, named after the Menlo Park, New Jersey Lab of Thomas Edison. MenloInnovations.com is our, our website. Uh, people come here and visit all the time. Uh, my email address is rsheridan at MenloInnovations.com and my uh, Twitter handle is MenloPrez uh, so they can uh, check my tweets. Also very active on Twitter, yes. <laughs> which is something I, I, I love just because, you know, I, the way I see Twitter is just a great way to to be in other people's like brains, you know, because yep. a lot of people just like to engage. Right? right. Yeah. OK, so last question here. What does the word joy mean to you? Yeah. So joy for us is very specific at Menlo. And when I have visitors come and I talk about the joy at Menlo, uh, I tell them the first thing is to look outside yourselves and ask two fundamental questions. Who do you serve and what does delight look like for them? And if we can delight the people we intend to serve, that is where our joy comes from. So first and foremost is an external focus. It's you know, it's not about happiness. I mean, we're happy at Menlo. We laugh, we have fun, uh, we poke fun at each other. But the work we do is hard, it's serious, it takes a long time to create a great piece of software. So it would be impossible without medication to stay happy every day. <laughs> um, but this deep satisfaction that you get from joy, the joy of serving others is where we uh, come from. This idea that we could create something with our hearts, our hands, our minds, get it out into the world and have people delight what we created. Uh, I tell a little side anecdote here. Uh, over the weekend, my team informed me that there was an article put up on LinkedIn uh, about uh, a group of, I call them explorers, I know of no other way to describe them, that literally carried one of our customers' products up to 17,000 feet up into the Himalayas. It's a device called a flow cytometer. Uh, we worked on it for Acury and it was eventually acquired by Beckton Dickinson. And they are using that product up at 17,000 feet. And they wrote this 
pretty lengthy article about how much joy that product brought to them. And I can tell you that our team just delighted in that story. Uh, I was actually interacting with this guy. As far as I know, he's up in the Himalayas. So there we are on LinkedIn, sending messages back and forth after the article came out and him telling me what a great job we did on the software. Now, this is somebody typically we would never meet. We would never know their story. But the satisfaction that our team, the joy that our team gets out of hearing a story like that, where here's a guy who just loves what we did, didn't even know who we were, didn't know we were the ones who created the software. Uh, that is where our joy comes from for us. And with that, I want to thank you for coming on. This is a great interview. Thanks for having me. You did a great job interviewing me. Thank you. <laughs> All right, everyone. That was Rich Sheridan with Menlo Innovations. We hope you had a great time listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Impact Michigan podcast.